Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. In this week's episode of the Economic Rockstar Podcast, I speak with Asger B. Torfason, Assistant Professor in the School of Business at the University of Iceland. Asgir and I talk about negative cash flows in banks, the difference between assets and liabilities, as well as how banks create money and the economy of Iceland. Asgir also shares with us who he would be if he was a Viking god and what powers he would use in order to fix the economy. You can check out all the show notes, links and resources mentioned in this episode at economicrockstar.com forward slash Asgir. That's A-S-G-E-I-R. Enjoy the show and be sure to leave any suggestions, comments or feedbacks on this or any other previous episode at economicrockstar.com. Never miss an episode of the Economic Rockstar podcast. Visit economicrockstar.com, submit your name and email and you will get each episode straight to your inbox. It's relatively easy when you are so small uh, and you manage to put, uh, you, you have your own currency, and you manage to cut off the, the foreigners. I, I mean, basically, the, the, the law were, were called Fuck the Foreigners Law. So, so all the, the, uh, the foreign credit holders on, on, the, uh, on the Icelandic banks, lot a lot of money. Hi, Frank Conway here, and you're listening to the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am so honored to have... Professor Asger Torfason join me today. Hi, Asger. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Asger B. Torfason is Assistant Professor in the School of Business at the University of Iceland, where he teaches finance, accounting and financial statement analysis. Asger defended his PhD at Gothenburg University in May 2014 with his dissertation, Cashflow Accounting in Banks, a Study of Practice. He was awarded Best Thesis in Sweden within Business and Economics for this PhD. His research combines bank management, finance theory, monetary economics, and accounting studies. Previous research has focused on asset values and long-term investment in real estate, a field where Asger has extensive practical experience covering the Nordics as vice president for a REIT listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Prior to that, he worked in university management after getting an MBA from Norwegian Business School in Oslo and studied early philosophy and economics in Iceland. Asgir, quite a, a diverse range of topics in your career, especially in your earlier career. So you've gone from real estate, now you're looking at cash flow regarding accounting and the, the banks, and you also have studied philosophy and economics. Could you develop your background, if you don't mind, and share us where has this all come from and what you've learned and where you've, why you've ended up doing what you're doing at the moment in terms of your research? Yes, I think that's a good good way to kind of explain where I stand today. I I um, I, I studied uh, I started my studies in university with philosophy, and uh, and uh, actually I then I had uh, some some big plans of doing like my bachelor thesis on the on the value of animals. I was doing some summer work on on animal testing, and then I had the idea of doing master thesis on the value of plants and ending with a PhD thesis with the value of mountains. We have a lot of mountains here in, here in Iceland. But, but then uh, at, uh, at, uh, in, in the later stage of my bachelor studies, I, we started to have kids, me and my wife, and then you get a bit responsible. So then I thought, uh, 
I have to add uh, some uh, so, something to my studies more than just philosophy. So I took economics also, um, and uh, yeah, to, to become more responsible father. And but but <laughs> actually, the 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 combination of philosophy and economics turned out way many years later to be a very good uh, kind of asset or a platform to 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 stand on. But uh, but uh, yeah, then things developed. I went back to work, and I mean, we, we are not so many here in Iceland, so we had some aluminium smelters being built, and and lot of work to do for for the ABB agent here. So, uh, uh, but I I after after that experience working with international companies coming here to build the uh, hydropower plants and smelters, I I thought I I I want an international MBA like like these guys that I was working with. So then we moved to Norway. Uh, where I where I took an international MBA, you know the only program in Scandinavia where they had like followed this uh, uh, Harvard model of case studies and and uh, and uh, I started there in 2000 and and people who remember that back uh, is th- then it was a huge boom uh, IT bubble basically, <clears throat> but when we finished our MBA in the spring of 2001, uh, there was actually a crash. Uh, and and this influenced also my my uh, development because we had an old professor there who had us read the uh, book called Mania Panics and Crashes by Kindleberger, um, and uh, and now that has been updated several times by by Bob Alibar. Actually, the latest edition of the book includes uh, quite many pages of Iceland uh, in it. But at that time, in 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 the in the late 1990s and and and. Uh, were, were the version I read in, in the Millennium Change uh, was all about the tulip bubbles and, and the history of bubbles. And, and that was very helpful while experiencing what was happening in the real world, where all the, all the uh, you know, MBAs in the world wanted to work for Enron in 2000. And then in 2001, everything collapsed and Enron disappeared and Arthur Anderson with it. So You mentioned that you lived in Iceland. And I'd love to know a little bit about Iceland because in terms of its economy and the demographics, it has a relatively small population. Would it be right by saying it has about 300,000? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Icelanders usually say 330,000 because every 10,000 counts a lot here. There were a lot of banks up to the financial crisis. You had per head of capita, you had more banks than anywhere else in the, in the world, I think. Yes, and and the the size of the banks, uh, if if you take the balance sheet or or the total assets of the banks, were at the peak eight or probably ten times GDP of the country. What so, was what was life like in Iceland at the time? I know you had moved to Norway and that, uh, yeah. and you're probably living there at the time of the financial crisis. But even before that, what was the optimism or the confidence like in Iceland? Yeah, I, at, at the time I did my MBA in in Norway, 2001, I I had really no interest in banks. Uh, then the, then the banks were like the old banks in Iceland, but they were starting to expand at that time. And then uh, when I finished the MBA, 2001, and the crash was, uh, 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 or, or, I mean, companies were laying off people all over Scandinavia. I moved back to Iceland, and then my philosophy professor had become the rector of the university, so I. 
didn't get my CEO position with uh, with uh, MBA like you, like you maybe think when you have an MBA. But I, I started to work in the central administration of the university, uh, which is actually running quite a big company. So and there that's where I came into real estate by building uh, uh, university buildings and. Uh, and at that time, the banks were were growing, but you really didn't notice. But then I actually moved out of the country to Sweden in 2004. And that's approximately exactly the time when things take off. Uh, and and uh, it, it can be related, I think, partly to that in 2005, the international accounting standards uh, for fair value are implemented worldwide. And, and that plays a part in, in the in the global financial crisis but uh, but but basically i i missed out on on this huge uh, um, boom and burst in iceland because i was living in in sweden from 2004 to 2014 basically so so i looked at it from uh, abroad and and that was quite scary thing to watch your small little island uh, uh, going through this crisis, but uh, but uh, I'm 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 still learning. After I, I recently came back here uh, to teach, uh, <clears throat> and that uh, I'm still feeling sometimes like an immigrant here in Iceland. I'm still learning about this this experience of the Icelanders. But but you can say in general, I mean things are recovering quite well now. The 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 banks are are. Uh, were were restarted the the foreign parts were cut off uh, and uh, and this is all in kind of a good good process now uh, i cannot say too much about the banks because i've been acting as a judge in some of the uh, court cases over the bank ceo so I, so i i have to be a bit careful of what i say about the icelandic banks on a, but the on Isla- a podcast like this the icelandic economy recovered quite quickly Mm. Yeah, uh, and it's because it it, t- it took decisions that were quite. How could I put it? Uh, I, I I could say I mean it's 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 relatively easy when you are so small uh, and you manage to put uh, you, you have your own currency and you manage to cut off the the foreigners. I, I mean, basically the 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 law were were called fuck the foreigners law. So, so all the the uh, the foreign credit holders on on the uh, on the Icelandic banks lot a lot of money, lots of money, and and uh, uh, and the and the Icelandic deposit holders were were saved. So, so and then you had to put up capital controls. So basically, uh, even though uh, you know internationally you say Iceland has recovered well and the numbers look well, well, great, but the the currency devaluated 50%, you know. So, so basically, the the everything got expensive. So basically, all the people in the country got a, a severe hit on their salary, you know. But you know, not in 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 nominal terms, but in real terms. So, so, so the recovery, I think, if you ask a normal uh, Icelander, has not been as fast and glorious as it is if you look at the macro numbers uh, from uh, from abroad. But, but. Uh, but this is, of course, uh, um, yeah, the, the success story of Iceland, obviously, because you managed to to uh, de- defend the island. But but you had to put up capital controls, and it's still like that. You have to show your uh, 
uh, airplane ticket in the bank if you want to get euros or, or dollars. And you can only get specific amount, you know. And what are relation, trade relations like with other countries, do you know? Uh, I mean, the, the other thing that, that saved us is, of course, I mean, we had mainly, historically, we've only been exporting fish. Then we added the aluminium smelters, basically using our hydropower <clears throat> from the waterfalls and the geothermal power. Uh, and then uh, what happened after the crisis, it had started before, but it really accelerated after the crisis and with the advertisement help of the Eyjafjallajökull volcano eruption, uh, tourism became like uh, the third main uh, pillar of the economy. And actually now it's bigger than fisheries and aluminium. So so basically uh, we, we uh, as, as a resource-rich uh, nation, you know, we got mackerel fish after the crisis and then we got the, the tourists coming. Uh, and, and, and this is uh, very big part in, 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 the, in the nice recovery. You mentioned that um, you took on economics because you wanted to become a responsible father. <laughs> and, you, yeah. and you gave up, did you give up um, your thesis on the value of animals or plants and mountains? Would they not be considered more valuable according to other people who might value the resources that we have around us? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this was this was a a, a mistaken uh, thought of a, of, a, of a young guy having having kids. I mean, it 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 would have been, I think, as good to to have proceeded with a with a plan in philosophy. And philosophy is uh, is uh, equally good education as economics. And I think even that the combination of the two was kind of the way forward for me. So. Actually, when I moved back to, to, no, when I moved to, to Sweden in 2004, I wanted to, to start a PhD because I had been working in the university dealing with a professor. So I, I really wanted to, um, yeah, to get a PhD and become a, a professor. And then I didn't get funding. So, so I, I had to look for jobs and I luckily got jobs in, in, in Sweden. And that's where I worked for this real estate investment trust. Uh, institutional fund for for investing in real estate, which gave me extremely good experience in in how the real market works and how investment works. And I, this was for a, a listed company on the New York Stock Exchange. So it also gave me insight into how the financial market works. And 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 this was during a very good time from 2005 to 2008. Uh, so 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 very successful, very easy to get. Uh, uh, funding for good investments, and and um, I'm I'm still very proud of all the buildings I've, I've made in 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 Sweden, and they are they are generating good cash flow for their owners. Uh, the Norwegian oil fund, I think, bought part of the portfolio now. Uh, but the the point is, uh, then uh, uh, I, I I continued with my idea from the university that I wanted to write PhD thesis on the value of buildings. So I'm, you know, the move from philosophy to economics was also like the move uh, from from the the, the, the animal plants and, and the mountains over to uh, the man-made environment, uh, so to say. So, so value of buildings was the original idea uh, that I took out to Sweden to write thesis on. And then after working on the real market with, with um, um, real estate, I developed the idea and, and then in, in summer of, or in the spring of 2008, I actually, uh, really didn't understand what was happening. I mean, uh, if you remember from that time, I mean, there were already banks failing then, you know, 
Bear Stearns and, and Northern Rock. And, and, and I, at the same time, there, there was a huge boom in the real estate market and I really couldn't understand what was happening. So I went back to the professor in the, in the university in Sweden and said, would it be possible to start a PhD now? And they had gotten funding. So I luckily got a, a, a PhD position in the summer of 2008, quit my, my nice well-paid job at, at, at the, in the real estate business and started as a PhD student 1st of September 2008. And two weeks later, the world financial system collapsed. And uh, that was a uh, quite uh, exciting times and, and, and uh, privilege to be able to be like working as a PhD student and following what was happening in real time. It was a, quite, a, quite a nice move at the time. Yeah, I mean, of course, I didn't see it coming, but... Uh, but but things were very strange in the end of 2007 and beginning of 2008. So so, so and and I wanted to to try to finish this uh, this uh, journey and and I actually started with with uh, with the original plan of of writing uh, a, th- a thesis on on uh, real estate or long term investments in real estate, but. <clears throat> uh, but in Sweden, there is this system for licentiate, which is like a half halfway PhD, uh, and and this, uh, of course, I could not do uh, related to uh, stock listed real estate. So so I took a family company as a as a case study, but really looking at different ways of valuing uh, assets and and investments. And and then um, in 2010, when I finished that thesis and it was published as a book then i i moved from the accounting department of of the uh, university so i ended up in the accounting department just by accident because i wanted to to focus on the value of of the real estate and the value of assets are of course on the balance sheet in the in the annual report so that's where i i came into the accounting department but then in 2010, I mean, of course, everyone was very interested at that time in what was happening with the bank. So, so I was participating in some bank research on the side with my Icelandic background. But then uh, in 2010, I got a, a, a three-year grant to to do like a new study, not continue with the real estate study, but change from the real estate to the uh, focusing research on the banking sector. So, so um, uh, and this is where you're. This is where you got your cash flow uh, study from, then, is it? Yeah. Because you mentioned cash flow earlier on when you were doing the building the properties, the real estate investment trusts. Yeah, in, and, and, in Sweden, and, and you were saying the cash flow was quite good there, and the emphasis was on cash flow. But your PhD suggests that ca- banks do not use cash flow. But before we get into that, could you explain what cash flow is? Because there's a saying that cash flow is the lifeblood of a business, but unfortunately, banks don't seem to see that. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 I mean, basically the, the financial statements in the annual reports of every company has to include the balance sheet, number one, where you have the assets and liabilities, um, and the equity. Then you have the income statement where you have your, your revenues and cost and hopefully profit. Uh, and then there is this third statement. Actually, then there is a fourth statement of changes in equity, but the third statement that was, uh, added in the in the 1980s is the cash flow statements which is basically like looking at your uh, your bank account so inflow and outflow of money so sources and uses of money 
that can be different from the income statement because you can you can have revenue that hasn't been paid or you can have cost that ha- uh, you know accounts payable and accounts receivable so 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 there are differences there and this was added as an additional information so that you can could see yeah basically where where the money is coming from and where it's going to and it's divided in three basic elements so it's cash flow from operations cash flow from investment and cash flow from financing and and that's related to basically you can have uh, uh you can have cash inflow if your mon- if your bank gives you a loan then you have a, a a cash inflow to your bank account and then you buy a house you know and you pay for the house and then you have a cash outflow but that's cash flow uh, to investment but but the loan from the bank is cash flow from financing uh, but then you have the 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 operations what you're doing you know your your uh, your revenue and and cost and the difference there is your cash flow from operations so so, so and this is in important information to see in every normal firm you know how much you know because you could have a profit from selling some of your assets you know and that's not very sustainable profit you know because at some point you you cannot sell more assets and maybe these assets were were what you were generating your income from so 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 therefore you need to look at all these three statements in in like a, a holistic view so they give you an idea of the liquidity of a firm and its stability, its operational stability. Exactly. And then, and, and this was implemented as an additional accounting standard after a huge uh, uh, collapse of a, of a company that nobody remembers anymore in, in the U.S., the WET grant. They went bankrupt and then some, some suddenly they went bankrupt. They were a, a household company that everyone owned shares in and, and they had been generating profit for many years and going very well on the stock market and then suddenly they collapsed. And then the, the two professors looked at the numbers 10 years backward and found out that they had actually been generating negative cash flow from operations. They were growing. They were building new, new. Um, this, this was the main competitor of Walmart, you know. So, so, so they were all over U.S. and growing, and they could get more, more funding from lending, and they could uh, provide profit and and make the the stock market happy. But they were actually not generating cash flow from their operations. So, and that's why they they collapsed so so quickly. And that's when this. You know, standard was added uh, uh, that this should be added to the annual report, and then it became international uh, accounting standard as well in the 1992. So, so, so that's the the history behind it. And this is uh, all part of what I, I I researched in in my PhD. So I went back to the the uh, the, the history, the documents uh, of the draft of the standard, the exposure drafts that the, the standard setter gives out and the comment letters that the the uh, companies and the accounting firms and the banks sent in. And, and, and this gave me very good insight from the history um, because the banks said in their comment letters on the standard before it was implemented, this is great. This is exactly what we look at uh, in our customers' uh, financial statements. We we want to know if they're generating cash so that they can repay the loan. So this is great standard to implement for our companies. But then the critical incident, few of the bankers said in their letters, 
Uh, but wait, but but you cannot let us provide this uh, cash flow statement for our own operations because all our operations as a bank is uh, is cash flow. So 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 uh, please uh, you know implement this standard for all companies, but uh, except for banks. So you couldn't do a cash flow on cash flow is what they're basically saying. Yeah, that was what the banker said in the eighties in. Uh, um, and the then the accounting standard board had uh, had uh, uh, to decide, and it was very tight. It was four against three in the board, you know. So 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 three board members wanted to follow the recommendation from these few banks and and uh, accept them from the, the standard. But four of the of the board members, so the the narrow majority, said, but banks like any other firms need to generate cash from their operations, so they should be. Uh, obliged to provide this uh, accounting standard like any other firms. They they need cash for their operations as well. So so that was uh, put in and the standard uh, went out uh, in, in 1987 in the US and 1992 internationally. And then nobody looked at it basically until when I started my thesis. And as a bank's cash flow, if would that be the interest generated on loans that they actually provide is what they want to track would be the equivalent of money coming in for an actual firm who's selling products or services. Yes. So, so, so basically what, I, uh, before I answer that, basically what I found out in the other part of my um, study in the PhD, basically in three parts is that uh, uh, and actually, I did that before I went to the the library through the historical documents. Is that I just looked at the annual reports of the banks. I mean, that's what you do if you come from a real estate or you've been uh, uh, business. You 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 when when things go wrong, you you look at the annual report and you look straight at the cash flow. Uh, and and the the funny thing was that uh, when I started to look at this uh, after the Icelandic banks collapsed, you know the numbers were very strange. And then when uh, when I started the PhD, uh, I took all the big Scandinavian banks, you know, in, um, basically seven, eight, eight banks uh, plus the Icelandic banks. But then I decided to exclude the Icelandic banks from a thesis because they were they were such a, a special case. But basically, in in the four big banks in Sweden and and and, and the seven big banks in Scandinavia, Norway, uh, Denmark, and, and Finland, uh, the cash flow from operation was negative, more or less during the whole decade prior to the crisis. So from 1997 to nine, uh, to 2007. And can I ask you, sorry, what's the negative cash flows that where the outflows are larger than the inflows? Exactly. So so. And and any bankers would would see that you know you would not lend to a normal firm that uh, has a negative cash flow from operation you know because it's bleeding money it's not generating money from their operations uh, so so and, and nobody had really noticed this because the the common knowledge in the market was that yeah cash flow is not relevant for banks we don't look at the cash flow statement uh, and and nobody had been paying attention to this. It was just the international rules that were put in place that they should do this report, and they just did this report, and and uh, nobody ca- uh, was was you know focusing on on this number. But uh, and and that relates to my third part of my study, is that I went uh, to interview people in the Scandinavian banks, you know, 
CEOs, CFOs, you know, operational people in the in the in the treasury department, in the credit rating department, in the risk department, and I was showing them these negative numbers that I found and and asking them, you know, how can you have negative cash flow for for such a long time? Because I I, I uh, couldn't understand it myself, and I had to find out during the PhD process why this was. Negative. And it's very simple when you know and when you find out. But actually, after 60 interviews, it was only the, uh, one person who could partly explain it to me when we sit, sat with a, with a financial statement and went through it. How can it be negative? And, and it was like an aha moment. Yeah. But of course, it's negative in banks when they have lending growth. You know, when banks are growing and they are increasing lending, then, of course, there is more money flowing out of the bank than coming in. And this, you know, was a common knowledge, you know, at, in Schumpeter's time or, you know, in, in, in the 30s or 40s, 50s, 60s. And then uh, when finance took over in the 80s and, and the international standards for accounting came, this was kind of uh, put to the side. So, so the the model became the money multiplier, and the banks are intermediaries between savers and lenders. But actually, and that's what I could show in accounting terms in my thesis, and then afterwards read a lot of old books about where, where this was uh, very well explained in economics terms. Is that uh, it's actually the the retail banks that increase the money in circulation. They create money uh, ex nihilio, out of thin air, in their accounting uh, by providing credit. You know, because when you sign the the uh, loan agreement, you promise to pay back the bank. And at, at, in the balance sheet, in the computer system, the uh, IOU, the, the, the loan contract you sign, becomes the asset of the bank. And to balance the the uh, account, the deposit is added to your bank account, and that's how the bank uh, creates deposits from the credit, and it doesn't need anyone to save the money first in order to be lending to yourself, and and this is a very yeah, and, and this fits to to um, what Minsky explained and and many of the older economists, you know. Uh, had talked about, but nobody really wanted to to talk to openly about in 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 the simplified model of mainstream economics and and, and finance theory. It was much better to have uh, the 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 view that the banks were intermediaries and the the you know first you need to save save and then you can lend it. But actually, it's the other way around. You can increase the money supply in the bank by lending and especially when all the banks in the in the, in the market are, are increasing lending everything goes well because they can net out payments between themselves and it's only when crisis hit <clears throat> when you have funding problems because of course afterwards the bank has to fund it did you find any notable differences between the Swedish or other Scandinavian banks in terms of their minimum reserve requirement? Because obviously, if you have the lower minimum the reserve requirement, you're able to give out more loans. Or was it more standardized throughout Scandinavia? Yeah, no, the the uh, um, 
the Riksbank, the, the Central Bank of Sweden, doesn't even have reserve requirements on the banks there. And actually, prior to the crisis, the Central Bank in Iceland lowered the reserve requirements on the Icelandic banks according to a European uh, common market uh, and, 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 and international rules, you know, in order, because they, they were acting on the same market, so they should be Provided with the, you know, equal terms to compete with the, uh, with the other banks on the, on the European market. Uh, but, but it, it, it's actually, it, it, it doesn't fully work to, to, uh, uh, stop the lending growth if, even though that's how, how it's explained in the model. But if the banks are, are all expanding more or less at, at, at the equal phase, uh, th- this is very hard for the central bank to control. And, and this, uh, you know, uh, but when you look at the numbers, when you look at the balance sheet numbers, you know, the, in the decade before the crisis from 97 to 2007, the Scandinavian banking system on the balance sheet approximately doubled in size over, over, over 10 years. So they, they, the, the, the balance sheet grew, um, grew uh, twofold. At the same time, uh, Lehman Brothers increased their balance sheet 15 times, and the Icelandic banks increased their balance sheet 85 times. And this was not because of increased saving by the people in Iceland. I can promise you that. And you you can't go into why that was the case? Uh, no, no, I mean... Uh, I excluded the Icelandic banks from from Adisa, and I'm learning still more about it. But obviously, they could easily fund themselves from Deutsche Bank. No Scandinavian bank lost money on the Icelandic banks. They had all uh, um, quit funding them in 2004 or five. You know. Can I just ask you to clarify one thing that? I'm still trying to get my head around. And I did study financial accounting and management accounting before. But mm. this is something we've already talked about not, uh, recently, uh, a few minutes back. But you said with a bank, a deposit is considered a liability and a loan and asset. And mm. me, along with some other people, might find that should be the other way around, that the loan should be the liability because the bank risks getting a, a bad debt on that loan, whereas a deposit could be seen as an asset. Are they called, is a deposit a liability because they have to pay out interest on deposits and a loan isn't considered an asset because they receive interest repayments on that loan? Yeah, so, so, so this is approaching to the, to the end or the conclusion of my thesis. So the question fits very well. I mean, the, the, the important thing is to realize that banks are different from other firms. You know, so everything is in mirror in bank accord. So you have to rewire your brain to get around this. The asset of the bank is the loan because that is uh, what they are getting income in the future and they will get it all repaid in, uh, over time. Uh, and the deposit, when you put your money into a bank, you think you are putting it there and they're going to save it for you or keep it for you. But basically what you are doing when you deposit your money, you put it into the bank, is that you are lending money to the bank. And that's why the bank has it on the liability side, because it's a, it's a loan. It's a funding for them for the the um, uh, the lending activity, which is their activity. And so basically what... Uh, 
you know, briefly taking the Icelandic banks again as a, uh, as a case. After the capital market quit funding the, the uh, Icelandic banks uh, in uh, 2006 or seven, they opened high interest uh, bearing uh, internet accounts in uh, all around Europe. I mean, especially the, the most famous cases are in, in the Netherlands and, and the UK. Uh, and that was, you know, a very good way for them to fund their operations when they couldn't uh, borrow money on the on the uh, on the bond market they could get funding from the deposit market but of course that's very hot money that that can very quickly flow out uh, and and then you lose your funding and that's what of course happened in in uh, in the uh, late 2008 and that's where you need deposit insurance and all this when 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 then things start to collapse but but uh, uh, let, let's not go into that. But but the the the, the important thing is that the banks uh, is is the opposite because when you have uh, money as an asset and you put it in the bank, it's on the asset side of your balance sheet. But this goes into the liability side of the of the bank, and the loan is on their asset side. And if, if they give you loan. Uh, the money goes into your bank account and, and, and you have the loan as a liability, but the bank has it as an asset. So, so this fits very well to the balance sheet approach of, of, uh, uh, Perry Merling, uh, who is uh, one of my, uh, most important sources in my PhD thesis. And, and I'm teaching, uh, his course, which is on Coursera, on, on the MOOC website of Coursera, Economics of Money and Banking, that explains this very well with the balance sheet approach and how the balance sheets are actually linked between uh, uh, banks, central banks, you know, uh, dealers and and uh, and users or, or households or companies. And 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 uh, it's hard to explain in in a podcast like this. But but I, I really strongly recommend uh, your listeners to to look at the. Uh, Economics of Money and Banking, uh, Part 1 and Part 2 on Coursera by Perry Merling in, in Barnard College in Columbia University. I'll definitely put the link up on the show notes page to that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so um, you mentioned a couple of economists there, Asger, Schumpeter and Minsky, and you alluded to a number of others that you would have studied uh, in, in order to get your head around this whole idea, a concept of negative cash flows and assets and liabilities. Are they kind of quite... Are they influential to your studies or who would you consider more influential as a philosopher or as an economist? Uh, it, it, um, I mean, when I was struggling through finishing my, my, my thesis, uh, Perry Merling had a, had a blog, the Money View blog on the INET website, the Institute for New Economic Thinking. So, so that was very, uh, important for me to get my head around this to understand this and be able to 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 kind of close the um, uh, the 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 case of the thesis and he wrote a book called the new lombard street uh, which is of course referring to batchot uh, book from the uh, 1864 on uh, called lombard street which is like the old uh, bible of central banking and and uh, what perry does in in his book is that it's the best explanation of the financial crisis that i've read uh, uh, and there he introduces this money view with with the balance sheet approach that i was describing but but of course he is he is uh, 
basing it partly on Hyman Minsky, which I would like uh, also to consider very uh, important uh, source for understanding this uh, this view on the financial system as a base or, or the capitalist system as basically a cash flow system uh, and and interlinked uh, uh, companies and these interlinked balance sheets. Uh, but but none of them ha- have been focusing on the cash flow in, in banks. I mean that's just the 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 the, the story that I had to try to uh, find an explanation to or, or or end to. And that's of course great to be able in your PhD to struggle with a problem that that uh, nobody has looked at before. But but basically it, it's it's very simple be- because it's the different classification. Uh, so the funding is classified as as cash flow from financing, but the lending is is classified as cash flow f- uh, from operation, and that's why there is this mismatch of, and that can explain the the negative cash flow. That was a mystery when when I started, but this is very uh, very obviously understood, and the uh, the, uh, the the idea to understand it is that. When banks can create money, I mean, they can they can have this negative uh, flow, and then of course it needs to be be funded later on. Uh, but to mention other few a few other uh, important, uh, uh, I, I would I would also like to to mention Einat uh, Granti, Katarina Pistor, who is a, a professor in Columbia Law School. And the originator of the legal theory of finance, uh, and and that's important for me because, like I said in in the beginning, I accidentally came into accounting uh, with my background in economics, and then uh, this is in the field of finance somehow. So so I'm in between these different disciplines or these different departments of the universities, and that's of course. Uh, a bit complicated when you're fi- fi- uh, trying to finish a PhD thesis, but it's also a fascinating place to be in because I think one of the problems of 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 uh, what we have in the world now or or in the academical system is these these silos or these departments that are not bridged well enough. But I also see that the the MOOC and the and the new new way of of uh, doing teaching with the internet, like with this podcast that you have, and all these things, it it makes it easier for people to stand in between and to bridge between different uh, different fields. So so the accounting rules uh, become law, basically in 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 all European countries after the international accounting standards are approved by the European Commission, they more or less become the law in the in the countries. And companies have to follow this law. So, 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 uh, there, there is a, and, and all finance is contractually based. So, so it's all based on legal contracts. And that's, that's what I was going to say earlier on. You were, you're in a privileged position to be having, having been exposed to the real estate investment trust market building uh, properties, creating cash flows and then moving into it. In, diff- fields of economics and philosophy and also accounting to try to understand these cash flows that banks have. So this is something quite unique and really one of the reasons why I wanted to get and contact you because it's a very interesting piece of research that you're actually doing. And I'd love to know, are you continuing with this research or are you moving off into some other field? 
Yeah, no, basically, um, uh, I, I was so lucky after I, I got the assistant professorship here in Iceland. I uh, Then uh, last year, I got a, a three-year uh, postdoc grant in Sweden. So I can uh, continue with my research, and I'm, I'm just doing a little bit of teaching in the in the, mainly the financial statement analysis and uh, the using the course of Perry Merling that I was teaching basically here in Iceland last autumn, using his lectures on the MOOC of Coursera, and then having the classes with the students when they came, having watched him doing the presentation, and then coming to class with me when we go through it, discuss it, uh, go into details, and this is I think a fascinating new way of developing the, the the university structure and then what i'm doing now uh, research wise is i'm of course i'm i'm working on publishing uh, uh, in scientific journals from my from my thesis on on the cash flow and continue with looking at the at the more banks i mean there are hugely exciting times happening in the European banking system uh, at the moment and within new international laws, both coming from Basel in Basel III and new international accounting standards like IFRS 9 on, on the on the financial instruments. So, so all this is kind of changing now and being implemented basically from last year until 2018 as a consequence of the crisis. So this is what I'm, I'm uh, looking at partly with, with a uh, colleague here who is a chartered accountant. Uh, if, if you remember, the subtitle of my thesis is a study of practice. And, and this is what is, I think, also very important uh, for me. I mean, the, the research has to be related to the real world and try to understand problems out there. So... Uh, what my main focus in the research now is that I want to go back a little bit more to real estate that I left in 2010 because the real estate is actually the collateral that the banks take for the loan. So there is actually a very strong link between the real estate values and the lending and the increased credit of the banks. And then the 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 other main focus of my current research uh, and until next year when I have the during this time as a postdoc is to focus on the central bank research. Because if you think of the banks and the banking system, the bank's bank is the central bank. So the, the central banks are extremely important uh, factor of resolving the crisis. Uh, it's very, very, very well explained in, in, in uh, Perry Merling's books in the New Lombard Street. Uh, uh, and it's, it's, uh, if you think of the bank being where the company put their money in, the banks have to put their money into the central bank. So I'm going up the hierarchy in, in the Merling term. So, 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 uh, and that's, that's quite, uh, um, a tough thing to be researching. The accounting of central banks is, is a very mysterious, uh, and, and I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around it, but it's, it's very exciting. And, and, uh, I just wonder, based on what you're just saying there, who polices the central bank? Uh, what do you mean, who polices? You know, so who, for example, with the retail banks, the central bank can decide what the res minimum reserve requirements are. They set the interest rates that mm. uh, cr creates the base rate that retail banks have, and the, they're the lender of last resort. And yeah, they but also obviously print money. But who polices these? Because yeah. a central bank could decide with, say, for example, quantitative easing to print all this money. 
Mm. And this could be to the detriment or to the benefit of an economy. So who controls or polices this? Because they're supposed to be independent of political interference. Yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, that's, uh, that, that's why it's so exciting uh, field to study now. I mean, basically what happened after the financial crisis in 2008 is that the central banks of the world saved the financial system. I mean, they, they took it on their balance sheet with a lot of different programs, um, TARP, you know, toxic asset, uh, uh, repurchasing program in, uh, and and quantitative easing one two and three and and uh, LTROs in ECB. I mean, all of these different programs is basically to save the financial system that that collapsed from its own weight. I mean, in in Minsky's terms, I mean the instability was so inherent in the system, so it uh, it 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 couldn't continue. And and in in Kindleberger's term that from the mania panics and crisis is that you know for stability you need the stabilizer and and the central banks are the stabilizer, but we don't have a world central bank. But what, actually, what they did was that they created these swap lines between the central banks, which is I think one of the most uh, important event in the financial history of the last decades and has gone very unnoticed. And this is uh, this was put up as a as a crisis response in 2010. Uh, Perry Merlin calls it the C6. The six big central banks of the world uh, made these swap lines. And what happened in 2013s? They were made permanent and unlimited in amount. And this is between the Fed in the U.S., the ECB, Bank of England, uh, Bank of Japan, uh, Bank of Canada, and Swiss National Bank. And these banks have unlimited uh, in time and amount swap lines between themselves, which basically, you know, th- there will not be a dollar shortage in the European banking system again, like like uh, was one big part of the of the uh, so-called euro crisis. Mm. I'm sure there's a lot of conspiracists out there that would think that this financial crisis could have been brought about brought about by a number of countries, we'll just say, in order to create a world central bank. And if this is these swap lines, if they're made permanent between these six or seven central banks, this could be effectively the creation of one Western style central bank. Mm, yeah, but but I mean, you know, like you said, they they are not they they are supposed to be politically independent, and they are doing their role. Within their mandate, I mean, following again the the the, the legal constructs, the the laws that they are, um, uh, uh, the laws that they are uh, um, obliged to follow, and uh, 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 sorry, my phone was closed. No, no, you're fine. You're uh, fine. Uh, but the the um, uh, the point is that they they save the system. But they cannot do it alone. I mean, the, the politicians have to do their side and the treasury has to do their part. And that, this is the core of the, of the, uh, problems we have in the Eurozone now. I mean, uh, and, 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 uh, and I think that, uh, 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 that it has been maybe un- unfair, the criticism of the central bank. Oh, obviously, they, they get a lot of criticism because they are doing things that they have never done before. But these are the times we are living are like 
uh, times uh, in the economy and the financial system that we have not seen for for uh, yeah ever before. So 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 they have been inventing their responses on the way, and uh, of course they get criticism. I mean c- zero interest or negative interest rate. But but this is their way of dealing with with the crisis situation and 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 trying to to save the system. But we we don't have a ready-made architecture for the the new financial system. I mean, obviously it it collapsed the 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 system uh, or or the architecture that we had from the that was uh, yeah developed in Bretton Woods after the war and then it changed in in 1971 with with the Nixon shock and when when you went from the gold standard and and now we are kind of in the phase of developing the new financial system of the world without having really finished it and that makes it extremely exciting to 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 research and follow but uh, quite challenging to live through so so that i'm i'm uh, I'm reading, yeah, too many books and I'm reading too much of the Financial Times because things are constantly happening. Uh, but it's, it's, uh, really exciting times, uh, but uncertain. So, so we don't need, we, we don't know the, the, the answer or the solution. And, and, and that's, uh, that's hard for some people, especially, uh, when you are, uh, are raised or, or used to, General equilibrium models where everything goes into uh, uh, balance by uh, itself, and then you have a real world where everything collapses. Asger, can I ask you a couple of quick fire questions before we wrap up? Yeah. Everything seems so positive for the Scandinavian economies. They're like, for example, number one in healthcare, number one in education, um, GDP per capita standards of living um is there anything that's bad about scandinavia or would you recommend people to check it out in terms of holidaying there or even considering if anyone's considering moving there for a career <laughs> yeah i mean the scandinavian countries are, are great to live in i mean I've, I've lived in three of them and i'm i'm next week teaching in in copenhagen so, so basically i'm i'm very much in in the four of the of the scandinavian countries and they are all quite uh, they are uh, they're all quite uh, uh, high quality of living uh, and uh, uh, you know, very nice to raise kids in very good welfare system. But looking at, you know, from the central banking view, I mean, the central banks are having quite difficult times, I think. And th- there are very many signs of housing bubbles in uh, in Sweden. I'm not as sure in in, in Norway and Denmark. But, and, and it's very hard to predict about the future but i mean housing prices that are going up 10 percent a year for very many years they bear all signs of uh, of a bubble but on the other hand you have um, a lack of supply so this is one of the things that i'm i'm trying to teach my students you know you have contradicting evidences and i can't i, I can't give you the simple solution or or the or the the single only answer to it, you know, because it's a, it's a social constructive system and, and you cannot calculate the, the, uh, the one right answer like in math, you know, uh, 
but but there you know there, there is uh, uh, th- there is some uh, underlying instability or problems in the even in the Scandinavian system but it's it's quite different from the from the problems we have uh, in in the southern part of Europe or, or or something like that but but it's it's uh, uh, it's some very nice countries to live in i mean definitely Oscar if you were one of the Scandinavian gods living in Asgard who would mm. you be and what would you do with your particular power Oh, this one is tough one. I wasn't prepared for that. Actually, one of my um, um, main kind of rule throughout my my whole studies is uh, not to go into any church, you know, in quotation marks, in, in, you know, in economics, not to become like, you know, belong to this specific group and, 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 and follow that, you know, whatever you call it, you know. New Keynesian, post Keynesian, you know, I've, I've tried to, you know, look into many of these different churches, but, but, you know, be in between and, and, and look around and find out what, what works or, or helps to solve. Uh, so like an atheist or something like that. But, but, uh, with, with the, with the Scandinavian gods, uh, I mean, um, uh, I'm, I, 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 I think that we uh, that we need some um, uh, some power to to get out of this mess and trouble we are in. And actually, the the so so if if uh, I have to think through who sh- who is who, if if the central bankers are Odin and and the politicians are Thor. Uh, may, uh, or, or if it's the other way around, but you know, I think that the the if, if I would have the, like the power be the the main guy over the group, I, I think I would tell the politicians. I mean, now you have to get your act together. You know, you cannot let it all be on on the central banking court, and you just play around and or be populistic or or or, or, or things like that because we are heading into. Uh, huge problems if if the politics wind out as uh, uh, as they look now. I mean, um, around around the globe, uh, but uh, you know, even only in Europe. So so to to go back to the the the, the list of, of of books that I had. I mean, reading John Maynard Keynes' uh, Economic Consequences of the Peace from 1990 will give you quite good insight into. Uh, um, mistakes made uh, there between the wars and 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 the severe consequences of that, and I and I and I hope we are avoiding that uh, now. But but we are living in 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 very uncertain times, and uh, and it's a bit scary that the politicians are not doing their part of the play uh, against the, the the central bankers and the actors on the financial market, because this has to be in cohort somehow coordinated. Uh, Dance that is more or less now everyone in their silo and not enough bridges between that I think are creating more problems than uh, would have to be. I think the god Loki would have been well suited to represent the bankers because I think he's considered to be more sneaky and uh, yeah, mi- mischievous yeah. and that rather yeah, than Thor. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, maybe, maybe. But one of the one of the important things I think in in designing the previous financial system we had was that Harry Dexter White in Bretton Woods managed to keep all the bankers outside out of the conference. Uh, you know, so that, and that's where 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 John Maynard Keynes and and Harry Dexter White basically yeah drew up the architecture of the of the, of the financial system that we had. And 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 then I would recommend also also of course a book. By Hyman Minsky on John Maynard Keynes, uh, uh, just called John Maynard Keynes by Hyman Minsky. That, that's also uh, a great book to get like insight into this uh, uh, structure that we have today that is somehow, um, yeah, unstable and, and maybe uh, uh, evolving too quickly for what we manage to get our head around while it's happening. Fantastic. Asgir, thank you so much for being so inspiring and for joining me on Economic Rockstar. I had a blast and I personally learned a lot from you. Share with our listeners where they could find you because I know you have a LinkedIn page and I'll put that on the show notes. Yeah, I, I, I need to put up like a, a, a personal uh, website, but I have also uh, at uh, www.about.me slash Asgir. Uh, and, and, and there you can... Yeah, read about me and I will put in their links to my other site. So there you can go to my LinkedIn uh, pro- professional website and to my research gate and academia websites where I have more of my academical stuff. But I, I And you have another page here now because you can find all the links to Asgir on economicrockstar.com forward slash Asgir. That's A-S-G-E-I-R. Asgir, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. You are an economic rockstar. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com, where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.